Hello, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Anna Lemke to discuss addiction. Anna is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. As a clinician scholar, she has published more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, book chapters, and commentaries. She sits on the board of several state and national addiction-focused organizations and has testified before various committees in the United States House of Representatives and Senate. In 2016, Anna published Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop, which was highlighted in the New York Times as one of the top five books to read to understand the opioid epidemic. She recently appeared on the Netflix documentary The Social Dilemma, which addresses the impact social media has on our lives. Her newest book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, explores how to moderate compulsive overconsumption in a dopamine-overloaded world, and was the topic of our conversation. I think the most important takeaway I had from my conversation with Anna was my newfound lens for viewing the pleasurable activities that I pursue in my daily life. While things like tasty meals, a few cocktails, or simply getting lost in your phone in the evening seem like elements of a happy life, these types of activities carry a cost. Our brains are not designed to handle many of the modern ways we seek pleasure. They are overstimulating, and by relying on them as tools to feel good, we are raising our pleasure threshold so high that when we aren't engaging in these activities, we feel a sense of emptiness. Only through aggressive boundaries can we maintain a stable baseline level of happiness and avoid becoming slaves to desire. Another critical point I realized from our conversation is the importance of coupling effort with reward. The on-demand nature of modern pleasures is a major contributor to the negative outcomes we experience. We must figure out ways to add space between our desire and the reward we are seeking in order for the rewards to have sustainable benefits. Suppose you love pancakes and I gave you a button that made a plate of pancakes magically appear in your lap. You might think that this would be pretty amazing, but everything we've learned about the brain tells us that this would very quickly diminish the pleasurable feeling you get out of eating pancakes. And for more addictive substances like nicotine, you may not grow tired of your consumption, but you'll eventually come to find yourself not motivated by pleasure or liking, but by wanting to just feel normal. I strongly believe that this episode contains some of the most important and practical advice related to long-term happiness and well-being. Since reading Anna's book and chatting with her, I have completely changed how I make decisions regarding pleasure and pain. 
And I hope that you feel as inspired as I was after hearing her perspectives. Enjoy. Okay, today I am joined by Anna Lemke. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, your book uh, really uh, stuck with me, uh, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. I picked it up earlier this year and fell in love immediately. Uh, it's uh, easily my favorite book of the year. Oh, thank you. And while the book is about addiction, it also provides a framework, not for just understanding addiction, but for understanding what people do when they want to feel good in the most broad of sense. And it looks at you know, behaviors that go beyond substance use, like our relationship with technology, even hobbies can be reframed in the context of of the focus of your book, which is which is dopamine. Uh, so what is the function of dopamine and why is it so important for understanding addiction? Dopamine has many different functions. It's a chemical that we make in our brain that is essential for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It is not the only neurotransmitter involved in that process, but it is the final common pathway for all reinforcing substances and behaviors. It's the chemical that, that says you need to pay attention to what's happening right now and potentially do it again. And therefore, dopamine is fundamental to our survival because did if we did not have this kind of reflexive, ancient, highly conserved wiring that says approach this and avoid that, we would not have survived over millions of years of evolution, especially in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, which is the world that we've lived in for most of human existence. So dopamine plays this very fundamental role that says, pay attention to this, it's important for your survival, investigate, explore, and probably do it again. Now, what seems to be part of the issue with dopamine and how it can contribute to, let's just say, harmful outcomes in the modern world, uh, a lot of that deals with how the dopamine levels in our brain, how, how it sort of cycles. So you talk about in the book, there's this constant sort of balance between pleasure and pain. Could you talk a little bit about why that's important? Sure. I mean, I think to contextualize it a little bit, uh, we have evolved uh, for an environment where we would have to work very hard up front, as in, for example, walk tens of kilometers every day to find a little bit of food, clothing, shelter, a mate that would then release a little bit of dopamine, essentially to bring our pleasure pain balance back to baseline or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. So, you know, what, 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 what one of the interesting findings in neuroscience is that 
pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain. The same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain. They work like opposite sides of a balance, like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground. When we experience pleasure, it tips one way. When we experience pain, it tips the other. Certain rules govern, govern this balance. And, and one of the first and most important rules is that the balance wants to remain level or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. So that with any deviation from neutrality, our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance. So again, thinking about us as humans with this kind of wiring in an environment that's harsh, in an environment where resources are scarce, in an environment where we have to endure a lot of pain, as in that balance gets tilted to the side of pain, for example, because we're very hungry and we're looking for food. Uh, when we find that berry bush or we kill an animal and eat it or what have you, uh, that's going to release dopamine, making us feel good. And that's going to restore our balance back to the baseline position, right? Which is great. What happens in the modern world, however, is that assuming that we're at the baseline position or even not at the baseline position, even tilted to the, slightly to the side of pain for whatever reason, we are now surrounded with so many highly reinforcing substances and behaviors that release so much dopamine all at once in our reward pathway that essentially our pleasure pain balance is struggling to compensate. Uh, so for example, just take our food supply, right? Lots of fat, sugar, and salt, additives, flavorants. Food is no longer just for nourishment. Food has become a drug. When we ingest these highly caloric, rich, flavorful foods, that releases a lot of dopamine all at once in the reward pathway, and that pleasure pain balance tilts to the side of pleasure. Now, remember, no sooner has that happened than our brains are going to work hard to restore a level balance. But how do they do it? They do it first by tilting an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That process is called neuroadaptation. And I like to think of that as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the gremlins like it on the balance, so they don't get off as soon as it's level. In this case, they stay on until we're tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That is the come down, the hangover, the after effect, that state of craving that has us wanting to eat one more cookie, one more piece of chocolate, whatever it is. And if in that state of craving, we have easy access to more of whatever it is, we are very much driven to reach for that as a way to quickly restore ourselves back to the level position. Now, if we don't, if we don't do that, right, uh, and if we restrain ourselves, which is hard to do, eventually those gremlins on the pain side of the balance get the memo that there's no more of this reward forthcoming, they hop off, and a level balance or homeostasis is restored. But the fundamental point here is that for every really intense pleasure that we experience from a baseline position, we pay a price, and that price is pain. That is the come down, and more importantly, that state of craving that can then put us into this addiction vortex that has us repeatedly reaching for more. So can you help put into context the types of things in our modern world that will spike our dopamine 
in in sort of an unhealthy way. You mentioned a couple. You mentioned sort of like the cookie or the the dense caloric food. Um, right. It, it it does intuitively make sense that our environment today is fundamentally different from that in which our brain evolved. Um, that's one of the themes on this podcast. I've talked to um, Doug Kenrick a little bit about how evolution has created some of our uh, hardwired uh, motives. Um, but could you put into context, what are the big culprits of the modern world? Because in, in your book, you call it the age of indulgence. What are the what are the big culprits in the modern world that um, are going to influence our dopamine in unhealthy ways? Well, there are traditional drugs, you know, cannabis, alcohol, cocaine, opioids, the list is endless. Of note, though, even those ancient drugs that have been around for millennia are more potent, more abundant, more novel, and more accessible than ever before. Um, and access is a huge risk factor for addiction. So if you live in a place where a drug is easily accessible, you're more likely to try it, more likely to get addicted to it. But on top of that, uh, and in addition to food, as already mentioned, there are all kinds of behaviors that have become drugified in some way. And technology and science and innovation, and especially the internet and digital media have really exploded the phenomenon of behavioral or process addictions. And this is things like gambling, gaming, sex addiction involving pornography and compulsive masturbation, et cetera. This is things like shopping. Uh, this is things like human connection through uh, you know, uh, all kinds of social media, uh, which have essentially drugified human connection. Even things that we typically think of as uh, you know, healthy and adaptive, um, like reading, for example, or playing chess, or exercise, or work. Uh, these things have become drugified too by, again, making them more reinforcing, by linking them to either social regard, monetary benefits, more accessible, more bountiful in that there's no stopping point. We can 24-7 access these kinds of behaviors, um, made them more novel, right, by combining multiple drugs together, a game plus music, plus social media, plus exercise, mm -hmm. uh, which is how you overcome tolerance and make a drug more potent. You know, when you think about something like exercise, which typically, um, you know, is immediately toxic to cells, aversive, hard to get ourselves to do. We even managed to drugify exercise through all of the uh, machines that we've created, the quantification where we're now tracking numbers. Dopamine seems highly sensitive to numbers. Uh, making it, you know, an outlet for social media and social social connection through various apps that allow us to post our times, compare ourselves to others. So you have this really interesting phenomenon where almost everything, uh, it seems to me, has been drugified in some way, uh, making our environment very addictogenic, such that uh, all of us have become vulnerable to the problem of compulsive overconsumption in the modern age. So I, I want to talk a little bit more about this sort of drugification, as you call it. Um, could you could you dive in a, a little bit deeper uh, as to the characteristics of these types of behaviors and what it, what is specifically unique about today? Uh, that you know, what what are the properties? I guess is what I'm trying to get at 
um, that might take a behavior and switch it from something that you like to do occasionally to something that has momentum that you can't stop. Yeah. So let's take human connection as an example. Um, we've, we are social creatures. We live in tribes. Uh, we've evolved over millions of years to make human connections as necessary to survival. Being part of a tribe allows us to steward scarce resources, protect ourselves from enemies and find mates, all of which we need to do to survive. What's happened in the modern era with the internet, technology, social media, uh, is that we've taken human connection, which we know releases dopamine in the reward pathway mediated by our love hormone, OxyContin, uh, at least, um, uh, probably mediated in very ma many other ways as well. Serotonin certainly plays a role there as well. Um, and we've essentially turned that phenomenon of making a connection to another human being into a drug through social media. Well, what are the characteristics of that? Well, well number one, um, a drug is something that releases a lot of dopamine right away without having to do much upfront work. That is certainly true for yeah. making connections to other human beings through social media. We don't even have to get up off the couch, right? So typically, right. you know, if you wanted to meet somebody, um, you had to go out of your house and you had to just like look for the people. And then you had to probably meet a lot of different people before you met somebody that, you know, you liked. And then you had to deal with the parts of that person you didn't like because there weren't a lot of other options and mm -hmm. you had to negotiate things and there were ups and downs and you had to stick through them because being together was better than being alone. None of that is true anymore. Now we can sit on our couch, we can swipe right, we can swipe left. Uh, the images are, you know, filtered images, ever more beautiful, amazing personalities. Um, you know, people like us back. So there's this exchange of information and pictures and music. So immediately, you know, we've got this incredible reinforcer um, we've got like buttons, right? We've got yeah. essentially infinite quantity. Um, and for people who are especially, um, let's say, titillated or turned on or reinforced by connecting with other human beings, uh, this is going to be, you know, a very powerful kind of a drug, uh, you know, whether it's a dating app or whether it's Facebook, Twitter, or what have you. Um, and then on top of all of that, like the innately reinforcing aspects of, you know, the easy access, the almost, you know, infinite amount, like TikTok never runs out, yeah. um, the novelty of it, right. The potency of it through the colors and the lights and the, the filters on top of all of that, you have added AI algorithms that essentially learn what we like and then drive us to ever more extreme forms of engagement. So it's not a passive process. Like, I mean, imagine if you, you know, it's hard to sort of think of an analogy, but imagine if, um, you know, you liked cannabis and cannabis actually knocked on your door or found you at work or, you know, um, showed up and jumped out of your computer you know, while you were trying to get something done. That's essentially what digital drugs do, right? The algorithms learn us. They know what we've liked. We've got these push notifications. Um, we have alerts. They come into our inboxes. They intrude on our visual screen. 
they're quantified, you know, the quantification makes us track our rankings, our number of likes, and on and on it goes. Uh, so <clears throat> after reading your book, um, I started to think a little bit more about how I interact with, you know, these types of things, technology, um, even, even substances to a certain degree. And it, um, I want to circle back and talk about, about specifically substances for a moment, which seem to be, even though technology is probably, you know, a lot higher of a percentage of the population probably use technology versus hard drugs or, or something like that. Um, it seems as though substance use is, is probably the most serious or has the most serious consequences of these categories of behaviors. Um, your book really got me thinking about the distinction between the casual user of a substance and what you might classically call an addict. And I started noticing and, and thinking about the fact that casual users of, let, let's just say alcohol and, and marijuana, we'll keep it broad. Um, casual users love to distance themselves from addicts, quote unquote addicts. You know, it, it, it's to the point where if you haven't had 16 DUIs, everything's fine. Everything's fine. You know, I, <laughs> right. I, as long as I get my go to work in the morning, I'm fine, mm -hmm. which, mm -hmm. which is, you know, it's, it's, it's not a good way to conceptualize your relationship with a substance. I think of the comedian, Bert Kreischer, he talks on his podcast uh, a lot about his substance use and alcohol and he romanticizes alcohol to the nth degree. And two years ago, I might've been there along with him and saying, you know, Oh, cracking open a bottle of wine. There's nothing better. Mm -hmm. But after going through your book for better or for worse, I don't see it that way anymore. Mm -hmm. It seems more like a, the substance sort of hacking your, my brain and, and mm -hmm. thinking that that's what pleasure is. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about some of the justification, some of the thoughts and mechanisms that people use when they think about their substance and how they rationalize their usage? Sure. Yeah. So we, the, the first sort of thing you described is like, I, well, I would need 12 DUIs to really consider myself as having a problem is really classic thinking for somebody who has a problem. And we usually refer to it as normalization of use. And normalization is in achieved in large part by affiliating with other people who are using in maladaptive or addictive ways, and then telling ourselves everybody uses that way. So for example, we might see in our clinic, a Stanford student who's consuming, I don't know, 30 standard drinks in a week, which is well outside what we would consider to be, you know, healthy or moderate non-risky drinking. And that student will typically say to us, I don't have a problem. Everybody drinks like that. In fact, Joe drinks even more. So I can't possibly have a problem because Joe doesn't have a problem. And then what can help in that instance is that we say, well, did you know that in fact, 50% of Americans don't drink at all? Uh, and then an additional, let's say, uh, you know, 40% has one, no more than one to two standard drinks per week. So that puts you in the, you know, five to one percentile or 
you know, for at, at 30 standard drinks a week, definitely in the one percentile. And then that's a surprise to people. Uh, that's a surprise because they really have normalized their use in their own minds in large part by affiliating with other people who use similarly, which is why um, oftentimes um, people who use substances in maladaptive ways will put a lot of pressure on other people to use with them. So there's a lot of like, come on, come on, come on. And, and part of that comes from wanting everybody around them to use to, to again, normalize uh, their use. So, you know, these kinds of behaviors, they're not largely occurring consciously. They're sort of in, invisible to us. The other thing that I think is really powerful and, and worth talking about is this concept of euphoric recall, where if you go back to the pleasure pain balance, we're very, we have very vivid recall for the initial stimulus that gives us pleasure, but very poor recall for its downstream effects as characterized by those neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. In fact, this also happens in the reverse for painful stimuli, right? Like when I, because it turns out if I intentionally press on the pain side of the balance, the gremlins go on the pleasure side and I get my dopamine indirectly. When I wake up in the morning, I have a very vivid memory of exercise being painful. I can't seem to remember that the after effects of my exercising are yeah. pleasure. So we just don't remember the downstream effects. And this euphoric recall for our drug of choice persists long after that drug stops doing the thing that we want from it. So long after it stopped working, long after it's caused all kinds of problems, uh, we still remember the drug fondly and we crave it. Um, and when we're under stress, it's the first thing that we think of and that we want to turn to, even when it's not working and causing the opposite effects. So, so these are, you know, some of the phenomena that we talk a lot about um, when people are working to get into recovery. Uh, how about this trend that I've seen lately? I mean, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not an avid THC user, but now more than ever, I tend to see THC used uh, as self-medicating anxiety uh, or, or just, you know, other types of, 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 of symptoms that are sort of in that area, maybe as far as depression, but the sentiment is always, well, this helps me cope. So there's no downside to that, right? It helps me cope. And do you feel that there are some cases where uh, these where substances like THC can be helpful or do, or do you kind of fall back on, well, there's no such thing as a free thing in nature? Yeah, I would say uh, a little bit of both. So I always validate that the initial using of any substance, including cannabis, in order to alleviate some kind of suffering, whether it's physical pain or mental pain, um, is effective for some individuals, which is why they go back to it and they mm -hmm. do it again. So I, I always start by validating something like, I hear you that when you first started using cannabis, uh, it helped you sleep or it alleviated your anxiety or it made you 
less depressed or it made you feel more creative or made you less socially phobic or it helped with your physical pain. All of that is valid in the short term for a given individual. Um, but again, if we go back to that pleasure, pain, balance, and those gremlins, the, the second rule of the balance is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar reinforcing stimulus, no matter what our reason is for using it, that initial deviation to the pleasure side gets weaker and shorter, but that after response to pain gets stronger and longer. In other words, those gremlins start to multiply. And with repeated use over time, we end up with enough gremlins on the pain side of the balance to fill this whole room. And then we're entering addicted brain where we've essentially changed our hedonic or joy set point such that we need more of a drug over time to get the same effect. It stops working at a given dose. And when we're not using, those gremlins are slamming our balance to the side of pain and we're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. So when patients say to me, cannabis is the only thing that works for my anxiety, for example, I say, yes, I believe that at this point you are getting relief from your anxiety. But my hypothesis is that you're not actually treating the underlying anxiety disorder. All you're doing is medicating withdrawal from the last dose. Mm. And that in fact, it is your continued use of cannabis that's causing your anxiety to get worse over time, i.e. that's causing those gremlins to multiply and change your hedonic set point, such that really the better intervention for your anxiety is for you to abstain from cannabis for long enough for those neuroadaptation gremlins that have accumulated on the pain side of the balance to actually hop off and for homeostasis to be restored, which is hard to do. Because when you stop using cannabis, you're going to slam to the side of pain, and that's going to last for at least 10 to 14 days. You're going to be in a state of withdrawal. I just had a patient today who said to me, oh, I don't, I don't have cannabis withdrawal. So he uses cannabis most days of the week to treat his pain. And I said, okay. He said, yeah, I don't have cannabis withdrawal. It helps my pain and it helps me sleep. I said, okay, well, when you don't use it at night, how's your sleep? He said, well, it's usually not, not very good. I said, okay, well, well, could you conceive that your inability to sleep if you don't use cannabis is a form of your withdrawal from cannabis? He's able to concede that that may be the case. Um, so, you know, it, it's very tricky because the narrative that we create, especially around medicinal use and self-medication can start out to be true, but eventually end up to be not only not true, but the opposite of true. And it's really then only with a period of absence that and resetting reward pathways, you know, that we can begin to get clarity on that, not when we're in it and kind of chasing those feelings. I will also add with particular pertinence to cannabis that we now have some data that's very useful that's coming out showing that in people who are daily users of cannabis, by either eliminating the number of days per week that they use cannabis or the overall amounts of cannabis they're using on any given day, they experience improvements in anxiety, depression, and overall well-being. So it's very nice to have that data point because what you have is a lot of um, misleading messaging out there saying that cannabis is an effective treatment for mental health conditions. Uh, and in fact, there's no reliable evidence that over the long-term or even short-term, frankly, cannabis is effective medicine for any mental health condition. 
So just let, like, like, let's just pause there for a moment because despite the media hype, there's no reliable evidence that cannabis is effective for any psychiatric disorder. It's got short-term efficacy for pain, for spasticity, uh, for uh, chemotherapy-related anorexia. It doesn't work for mental health disorders and, in fact, makes mental health worse. Yeah. Yeah. I used to think of, of there was some overlap between drug use and or casual drug use and superstition. When I was uh, in grad school, I did some work on superstition and you know, there's, there's some data suggesting it might help with performance. And I always ask the question, it's like, well, yeah, but what happens when you take away the superstition or what happens when you take away the lucky object? Like I'm more interested in that rather uh -huh. than uh -huh. chasing the, the, you know, having that with you all the time. There's, mm -hmm. you know, aside from that, there's a resource thing too. It's like, are you spending money and energy right. on this mechanism when you could be using it somewhere else. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's it's all going to be the cost benefit analysis, right? And I, I think the key piece there is that we, when we are chasing dopamine, we are not necessarily the best judges of that. And that's something that's hard to accept, but just so repeatedly true uh, that I think we have to really look outside of ourselves and, and look to what others are saying. Because when we rely on our own judgment, we're just, we will repeatedly uh, misperceive reality in favor of our drug of choice and not appreciate the real impact and the real causal direction. Uh, but if we ask other people around us what they're observing, we're likely to get much more reliable data. Another interesting defense that that I commonly hear when it comes to uh, things like substances, and I, I would say this definitely kind of bleeds into food, um, which is, it's, it's sort of, it seems on the surface, like a philosophical argument. Like I, you know, I, it goes something like, I prefer to have the experiences that are eights and nines on a regular basis. So if it's, you know, a, a substance like alcohol, you know, I want to drink and have a blast uh, half the week and then I'll deal with the hangovers, the twos and the threes. Mm -hmm. um, you see it with food. You know, I, I just, you know, I, I want the, I want the cake. I want the ice cream. Mm -hmm. I like the sweets. They make me happy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the the argument is that is the way that I I operate. That is what happiness means to me on the other side of the coin you can kind of dismiss the you know who wants to live a six a five or a six every day mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. and i'm almost convinced by that but i'm curious <laughs> as to <laughs> you know because i i've been i've been i i can see i can see the sentiment there but mm -hmm. i'm curious as to your thoughts about moderation mm -hmm. And, and this idea of, uh, you know, it kind of goes back to the romanticizing um, mm -hmm. drug use, but could you talk a little bit about moderation and, and this sort of dynamic of, of being okay with fives and sixes versus, you know, peak experiences? Yeah. I, well, this comes up a lot in clinical care as people get into recovery from addiction. Um, you know, one of the main complaints and often one of the main reasons for relapse is boredom. 
sort of like, this is not very interesting, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, not just minus drug use, but minus all the drama that my drug use created. Uh, do I really want to live in this world of sort of pale shades of gray? But the truth of the matter is that with sustained recovery, as we immerse ourselves in reality, such as it is, the world becomes very interesting and very bright and very engaging in ways that are ultimately, I would argue, more rewarding and more sustainable. Um, and I think a lot of what drives this sort of like, well, yeah, I'm going to, you know, have, have to pay a price, but you only live once, carpe diem, you know, I want the excitement, um, you know, I'm a, I'm, an, I'm a risk taker, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, that's partially driven by, I think, our cultural tropes um, and the way that we conceptualize what is happiness and what is what is being alive and what is you know what is the purpose of my life and all of these things and unfortunately we live in a culture quite a you know with quite a nihilistic orientation around the idea that like life doesn't really have all that much meaning so why not just live on the extremes you know and then you know, burn, burn bright and burn, burn fast yeah. and then burn, burn out. And, you know, and that, that's just, that's sad. Um, but instead of just sort of, I think, you know, committing ourselves to that, what I think is, you know, ultimately an unhealthy narrative, what we need to do is, is really immerse ourselves in finding meaning and purpose, which is hard to do, you know, in a world in which that's not obvious, you know, a world in which basic basic survival needs are essentially taken care of, and we have to get a lot more creative. Well, and, and the other part of it, specifically as it relates to food, for example, if if you are making it a norm to eat the the high fat, high salt, high sugar types of foods, what you generally find at a fast food place, or even going out to eat is loaded with, you know, these, these ingredients that make us crave, crave, you know, these types of dishes. Again, the regular everyday types of food become bland, right? It, it's not as if they're, that they're inherently, right? Uh, inherently bland. Right. It is only by contrast. And and I realized this very quickly, you know, having having uh, been sort of on a ketogenic diet for most of 2023, that when I'm eating my can of tuna uh, and, and some avocado and, you know, stuff that is kind of boring, um, <laughs> that it's very rewarding except for when I've had maybe a weekend where I've gone out and had a big meal and, and I, and you actually can catch, I can actually catch myself wanting something more, something tastier mm -hmm. uh, as I'm coming down on that Monday after the weekend. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there's that old joke. It's like, what, what's the secret ingredients to any recipe? And the answer is hunger. Um, and, and when we are genuinely hungry, you know, even a piece of broccoli uh, tastes good, genuinely good. So, yeah, I mean, recognizing the relative nature of pleasure and pain is essentially at the heart of 
you know, this neuroscience metaphor of pleasure and pain balance. And I think that, you know, as we try to recapture um, pleasure in our lives, you know, instead of relentlessly pursuing ever more potent forms, what we need to recognize is that the, that our desire is infinite and that it, that never ends and that the the more potent the pleasure, the, the bigger the come down. And finally, we get to a place where we can't find anything that works anymore. And, and again, we're, we're sort of been in this kind of chronic dopamine deficit state as a way to compensate for all of these dopamine hits. And instead, you know, to recapture pleasure, we have to pursue a kind of new form of asceticism where we really abstain from and, you know, deny ourselves these highly reinforcing drugified forms of food or whatever it is so that life's everyday more modest pleasures become pleasurable again. And they do, and they do. And, and so, you know, I think one of the ways to help ourselves kind of reset things is also to reframe the way that we think about it instead of thinking about it as again, denial or not being able to have something. If instead we reframe it as giving ourselves the great gift of recapturing our ability to take joy uh, in more modest pleasures so that we're moving towards something positive, not just denying ourselves, you know, these kinds of, uh, high rewards that are constantly tempting us. Uh, so let's, let's talk about, uh, we've, you, you just kind of mentioned some, some, some good advice about how we frame pleasure. Um, let's talk about some concrete solutions, uh, to addressing this problem of dopamine. Um, so obviously, you know, one, one of those is, as you sort of mentioned, is uh, reframing pleasure and sort of um, taking the initiative to avoid some of these some of these activities that that spike our dopamine levels too high, um, and that can help us enjoy the things that are sort of in in the, in the middle. Um, uh, what is what is another thing that we can do to avoid some of these pitfalls of, of highly pleasurable uh, or the pursuit of pleasure. So another thing uh, that's really important is to recognize that our pleasure pain balance is triggered, not just by the drug itself, but also by reminders of the drug people, places, and things that we associate with our drug of choice. And because, you know, once we're triggered uh, and, and experience craving, it's very hard to resist. One of the things we can do is create self-finding strategies to limit not just our exposure to our drug of choice, whatever it may be, but also to triggers of that drug of choice. So as you know, in the book, I talk about my addiction to uh, romance novels. And um, you know, one of the big triggers for me was the medium of reading them on a Kindle, which allowed me to access Amazon as soon as I finished one uh, read another one right away, even if it was three in the morning and I should be going to sleep. Um, so for me, an important self-finding strategy was actually to get rid of the Kindle and to um, make it necessary for me to go to the library and get a book if I wanted to get one. And just that little pause mm -hmm. and that delay can really help us 
a recapture our ability to think through whether or not we really want to consume that particular item. So I think these kinds of self-binding strategies, you know, which come in many different flavors, sometimes it might be uh, not having a particular food in the house or not having a particular app on our phone or, um, you know, locking away our devices uh, at a certain time of day, um, all kinds of microenvironmental changes that we can make that make it more likely for us to be able to um, stay, you know, within our consumptive goals, whatever those mm-hmm. may be. Uh, what are some mistakes, some typical mistakes that individuals make when they address their their own addiction? I feel like there's got to be some common ones, like sort of, you know, just just from your experience dealing with so many different patients, um, what, you know, are there some commonalities in in terms of the strategies that people use? Definitely. I mean, there, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call any of them mistakes. I would call, call it all kind of like data gathering, um, you know, to see sort of what works for a given individual and what doesn't. So, you know, what we typically will do, Uh, is we will ask people to abstain from their drug of choice uh, for four weeks as an opportunity to reset reward pathways. So if if they're, you know, struggling with alcohol, that would be no alcohol for four weeks. It's cannabis, no cannabis, four weeks. This obviously all assumes that they're not at risk for a life-threatening withdrawal. If it's a sex addiction, it would be no orgasm with themselves or others for four weeks. If it's romance novels, no romance novels for four weeks, what have you. And then at the end of that period, we ask them, well, you know, do you feel better? Uh, If they do feel better, and about 80% of them do with that intervention alone, we ask, do you want to go back to using uh, or do you want to abstain, Uh, continue to abstain? And most people the first time around want to go back to using, but they want to use differently. They typically want to use less uh, and they want to have uh, more uh, control and agency around their consumption. So then what we do is make a very detailed plan about what that will look like, how much, how often, in what context, uh, with whom, uh, what delivery mechanism, as much detail as we can garner, as well as a plan for accountability. And then they go out into the world and they give it a try. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, when it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out in a number of different ways. First of all, there can be something called abstinence violation where uh, with you know the plan to moderate is immediately sunk with a massive binge uh, that ends up you know right where they left off. And then there's this, this realization like, oh, wow. I thought I would be able to moderate. I thought that this month of abstinence, resetting reward pathways, greater insight, greater motivation, but it didn't work out for me, right? I, I clearly am not able to moderate. And so then that then the plan is, okay, we're able to moderate. Maybe we could use some other self-binding strategies that would enable you to moderate. Or maybe you're just a person who's not going to be able to moderate their use of that drug. And that may take many cycles and iterations for the person to realize that. Or maybe the person is actually able to moderate, but it's not worth it in the end because using in moderation doesn't actually get them the effect that they want. And it's so exhausting that abstinence seems like a better goal. 
or maybe moderation works for them and it's worth it. Um, and they're able to continue and maintain that. So all of this is, is sort of, you know, experimentation, data. So there's not like, you know, one right way. And I would say the, the paths are as infinite as there are people, but in general, you know, the kinds of strategies that, that really help are, as I've said, these self-mining strategies, making sure that, um, that we're insulated, not just from the drug, um, but from triggers as well. Um, the other really useful thing tends to be um, radical honesty or embracing an ethos of being totally truthful uh, because people in their addiction can get into the lying habit mm -hmm. and people who are able to moderate or abstain for the long haul usually can't lie or don't lie and they find that telling the truth helps them. And then also uh, this idea of hormesis or intentionally do, doing things that are hard or painful as a way to uh, upregulate dopamine production indirectly by paying for it up front, which also then, you know, reduces this whole problem of boredom. Because if you're doing things that are really hard um, as a way to get your dopamine, it's it's pretty interesting, right? It's not boring, although it is hard. So for, that brings me to my last question, uh, which is something that was brought up by my students today uh, in my lecture where I touched on dopamine, um, which is what are some specific activities that people can do to, uh, to either increase their dopamine or, uh, an activity that is, that is beneficial that, you know, maybe unrelated to dopamine, but it's, it's, you know, what are, what are the maintenance behaviors that people can do, uh, to, uh, to keep a, their dopamine system functioning in a healthy way? So the key here, uh, is to, in general, avoid potent intoxicants. And if you do choose to use them, use them in moderation and leave enough time in between use to reset reward pathways mm -hmm. to homeostatic baseline so you don't get caught in that vortex of fighting with your gremlin. So that's number one. Number two, we have loads of evidence that exercise upregulates endogenous dopamine and other feel-good neurotransmitters, and some evidence that ice-cold water bath immersion does the same. Um, we also have evidence that meditation and prayer uh, upregulate dopamine levels. Um, so those are examples right there. For examples, exercise, ice cold water baths, meditation and prayer that we have evidence for in terms of upregulating dopamine transmission. But clinically, anecdotally, my patients will tell me that really almost anything that requires effortful engagement over time that is not immediately reinforcing, but the cumulative effect over time brings reward uh, is very effective. And this would also include social human connection. So addiction leads to isolation. Uh, so in many instances, the antidote is to reach out to other humans, maybe not through the technology, right? Or if it's through the technology, not in a way that drugifies the experience. So not on, you know, a dating app, but with as a way to maybe augment existing connection with somebody in real life. Um, but maybe in real life, you know, reaching out and making those um, human social connections. There are lot, lots of things we can do. Effortful engagement in the here and now, making contact with our true selves, other people, and the world around us.
Well, thank you so much. Uh, again, the book is called Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It totally reframed the way I look at, at this idea of pleasure and how we go about finding things that make us feel good. Uh, I listened to your interview uh, with Andrew Huberman, and I I grabbed one of your uh, quotes and uh, I, I paraphrased it and I've set up my iPhone every day uh, when I when I hit the when I prompt it to do my wake up routine, it recites the quote. And uh, wow, the quote is essentially, uh, don't do what you want to do, do what needs to be done and right. needs to be done in sort of this kind of romantic way of what inspires you and um, what speaks to you at a, at a high level. So uh, thank you so much for uh, for uh, crafting this book. Uh, and thank you for being on today, Anna Lemke. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed our conversation. Anna, visit AnnaLemke.com. That's A-N-N-A-L-E-M-B-K-E.com. Or pick up a copy of Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, wherever books are sold. If you enjoy this podcast, please share an episode with two of your friends. Follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or X, formerly known as Twitter, at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at Why Do We Do That Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question. Why do we do that? Mm -hmm.